is who we are really determined by what we feel? Or is there some other defining authority? In his book, Be True to Yourself, Why It Doesn't Mean What You Think It Does, and How That Can Make You Happy, author Matt Fuller sets out to address these questions. He writes, back in 2015, Caitlyn Jenner, known until then as Olympic athlete Bruce Jenner, transitioned from a man to a woman saying, I am a woman. I was not genetically born that way, but I still identify as a woman. This was met with huge support and media celebration. Yet shortly afterwards, Rachel Dolezal, a white woman, hit the headlines when it was discovered that she was running a local branch of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People despite having two Caucasian parents. Dolezal insisted that she identified as black. She said white isn't a race, it's a state of mind. This was met with outrage and vitriol. She lost her job and was hounded for months on social media. One commentator wrote, transgender activists transition out of medical necessity. Dolezal's transition to black is surrounded by layers of deception. So pause and think about that statement, Fuller says. Why does a man feeling like a woman mean that transitioning is a medical necessity, but feeling and defining yourself as black is shrouded in layers of deception? How do you decide which feelings are legitimate and should be acted on and which aren't? Why was Dolezal denied the freedom to self-define? He says, I don't ask these questions aggressively, but in confusion. They highlight the fact that when we reject God's definition of who we are, life becomes complicated In our current cultural moment, one person is affirmed for defining themselves by how they feel, but another is told that how they feel is irrelevant. Which is it? Well, we're going to get some insight into this from our scripture this morning. But first, let's pray. Lord, many of us in this place can confess that we know the complicated life of rejecting you and your ways. And we seek you now from the midst of a cultural moment that is certainly confusing. And we come to you and we come to your word this morning, God, for wisdom beyond ourselves. We have read already about your powerful voice that speaks into existence things that were not. So speak to us, we pray, as we ponder your word today. Amen. Genesis, the word means beginning. And the Bible's book of Genesis is just that, the account of the beginning. Not just the beginning of a particular book, but the beginning of everything. The beginning of time, the beginning of space, the beginning of creation. And the first four books of Genesis can be considered, first four books of the Bible in Genesis, can be considered the Bible's prologue. The prologue, as we saw in our study of Ruth, 
is a part of the story that introduces what we need to know in order to grasp the rest of the narrative. Genesis 1-4 sets the table for us to read the rest of the Bible with understanding. It explains this world. It explains how humans came to be. What we're supposed to be doing. Why things are so difficult. It quickly reveals the spiritual battle that we are all engaged in while offering a promise of how we will overcome. In Genesis 1, we're all introduced to the main character of the story, who is, of course, the main character of the entire Bible. The Bible is one book, you know, comprised of 66 books with one main character. And that is our triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One main character in one book, in one main plot. The display of His glory. He's mentioned 32 times in 31 verses of the first book. In the first chapter. And that's our first clue. The Genesis and the Bible is a book about God. Now that might seem to you as a pretty rudimentary conclusion. Thank you, Captain Obvious, Pastor. We kind of know that. That's why we're here. We believe that. That's why we're willing to gather in a gymnasium to worship. But here's the deal. If you or I or anyone else misses the prologue of this story, if we get the foundation of it all wrong, it will be nearly impossible to make sense of the plot that unfolds in the rest of it. The Bible is a book about God. And it is God's word to us about Him. A wonderful book in which we see a wonderful God who is not coincidentally exactly what we need and who we were made for. In the beginning, God. That brief introduction forms the foundation of a worldview. What is a worldview, Pastor? Thank you for asking. A worldview is something that everyone has whether they know it or not. A worldview is a comprehensive framework from which we answer the basic questions of life. And it starts right here in Genesis 1.1 with the affirmation of God. It's not surprising that the well-known 4th century Apostles' Creed begins with this phrase, I believe in God the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. This opening sentence is summarizing the teaching of Christ's Apostles, and it's the basis of our Christian understanding of everything there is, one Creator, And everything else is His creation. He's the author of everything. He made it. He designed it. He formed it. And He set its boundaries. In the beginning, God created. As Christians, I doubt any of us have a problem with a worldview that begins with God. Our problem is that we're surrounded by an increasing number of people who don't. We live in what scholars call a post-Christian era. 
We might even make the case these days that it is a, an anti-Christian era. David Dockery is writing for the Gospel Project, and he observes this cultural shift that you and I have been observing and feeling and in some ways reaping. He defines a, defines a cultural shift as one that makes a decisive break with the shared meaning of the past. The break particularly affects those meanings that relate to the deepest questions of the purpose and nature of human life. We certainly are seeing a cultural shift, are we not, away from the principles and ethics that provided the foundation of our country, and even the principles and ethics that once governed our churches. A cynical unbeliever might gloat over that shift and accuse us of feeling threatened or, or maybe we're intimidated or upset because of Christianity's loss of power or influence. But don't be confused, as many are. Faith isn't about politics, where the goal, the objective is control, and the aim is to neutralize or eliminate opponents. We do recognize, as Christians, a cultural shift. And the reason we lament it is that we know it's going to bring greater disorder and heartache into people's lives. That's why we lament the change. Because the further we get away from the principles of God, the more complicated this thing is going to get. The more we reject the principles of the Creator, the harder it's going to be to be creatures. That's the problem. Not that we're not top dogs, not that we don't have a a great loud voice. The problem is we know that the wages of sin is death. Our issue with the cultural shift is not the loss of the majority position, but the consequences that are sure for everyone who rejects. Nice try, Sam. You get get an A for effort there, brother. Dockery goes on to write, the issues of society are worldview issues. Christians everywhere recognize there is a great spiritual battle raging for the hearts and minds of men and women around the globe. We now find ourselves in a cosmic struggle between Christian truth and a morally indifferent culture. Thus, we need to shape a Christian worldview and life view that will help us to learn to think Christianly and live out the truth of Christian faith. I really appreciate Professor Dockery here putting the onus on us, putting the onus on the church. We believers, he says, we need to shape a Christian worldview. He's not screaming at the darkness, right? He is not blaming unbelievers for thinking and acting like unbelievers. He's not complaining because people who don't know Jesus and don't have the Holy Spirit aren't acting like Christ followers who are Holy Spirit filled. None of that. He's not complaining or pushing people away or anything. It makes perfect sense why the world is going in the direction that it is going. No, he puts the onus on us. And I think that's where it belongs. We, the Christians, have to be diligent to shape in ourselves a worldview in order to do what what T.S. Eliot says, in order to think in Christian categories. In order to see this world the way it was intended. In order to understand that what looks like normal is abnormal according to the creation of God. But in order to stand up still for what God says 
is normal. That's what this message is intended to do today, by the way. Shape and reshape that Christian worldview that begins in the beginning. That's what's going to help us to fulfill our purpose in this world as salt and light. That's what's going to allow us to consistently give a defense for the hope that lies within us. That's what's going to give us the information and confidence we need to kindly present challenging alternatives to society's narratives. That's what's going to let us live out our faith. That's what's going to ensure that when all is said and done and we look at our God, we will say, I was obsessed with your glory. I wanted to make much of you with the time you gave me. I want to put the spotlight on you. I want to speak for you. Our teaching today begins at the beginning where we see established the reality of a Creator God. Yes, there is a God. From the pages of a book, His Word to humanity, yes, He has spoken. And yes, He's still speaking. That is fully reliable and authoritative. Yes, there are ways to live and ways not to live. And there are consequences for both. Point number one from Genesis 1.1, for those of you who are taking notes, and by the way, the the progress here is a little slow, but, but it's steady. We now have clipboards and pens. So if you didn't get one on the way in, don't go get one now. But next week, there'll be a clipboard and a pen waiting for you if it'll make it easier for you to take notes. Just the little things, right? It's the little things. Point number one from Genesis 1.1, God is the Creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, Pastor, how did He do that? Well, I don't know. Because I wasn't there. Because I'm old, but I'm not that old. I read, however, as you do, that He spoke creation into existence. Notice how many times in that first chapter you read, and God said. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit. And God said, and God said, and God said, ten times in these opening verses. And God said, and it was so. And God said, and it came to be. Out of nothing. Ex nihilo. Out of nothing, God makes something. I want you to let that sink in, my friend. Because that concept goes beyond initial creation. We serve a God who can make something out of nothing. Never underestimate the power of God to do what you cannot do to make something out of nothing. By the power of His voice, by His Word, God spoke creation into existence. 
And what does that mean? Well, minimally, it means this. The teaching of the Bible is that this world didn't happen because of some cosmic accident. That this world is not just some happenstance creation where everything fell into place just right in order to make it all happen. It was intentionally made by God. He made everything that was made. This is what the Scripture teaches. So do not miss the point of this first chapter. From this first book, there is a God. God is the Creator. We have a world because God made it. And we are here because God made us. Now point number two. God's creation is good. God's creation is good. Well, how do we know God's creation is good? Well, because the Bible tells us so. Right? In terms of how everything was was made, we read, and God said. In terms of God's assessment of what He made, we read, and God saw. Ten times, and God said. Six times, and God saw. What did He see? He saw that what? It was good. And the final verse of chapter 1, ramps this up, ramps up this evaluation of God's work a little bit more, and God saw everything that He'd made, and behold, it was very good. It's not just good. It's very good. That word means holy. It is holy good. It is vehemently good. What God made was holy good. And what that means is that it wasn't lacking anything. It wasn't incomplete. God didn't miss any steps. God didn't cut any corners. Everything He made, He made it exactly the way that He wanted to make it. Hard to relate to that, isn't it? You and I can't say that, can we? We can't say that everything we set our hands to make comes out exactly the way that we want it to. No. But unlike us, God is perfect, and the work of His hands and creation is wholly good. Now, I don't know how you pass the winter evenings that start too soon and go too long. But Liz and I are in the habit of sitting on the couch in front of the fire and watching a show. And I've told you about this show before, and we're still on it because it has multiple seasons, and we, we discipline ourselves. You can only watch one or two half-hour shows. You don't want it to become an addiction or anything. It's a great British menu. In every episode, competing chefs bring their meals to this place they call the pass. Bring your meal to the pass. And the judge, a Michelin star chef, a famous chef, invariably, in the judging process, asks the chefs, are you happy with that? Are you happy with that texture? Are you happy with that flavor? Are you happy with the kicking? So you say kicking, like kicking. It's cooking. <laughs> happy with the seasoning? Are you happy with that? When it comes to creation, God is happy with what he has made. If there were a better way to make it, he would have made it that way. His creation and design is perfect, and it cannot be improved upon. 
So God is the Creator, and His creation is good. Point three, God created mankind in His image. Then God said, let us make man, verse 26, in our image after our likeness. Humanity exists as a consequence of an intelligent and divine will and design. We are creatures created by God. We are not God. And we are not gods. But we are unique. We are set apart from the rest of creation because God made us in His image. The Genesis account testifies that men and women are distinct from everything else that has been made. Now, this is what the Bible teaches, so hold on to that because we're wading into waters where society may say something different. But this is what the Bible teaches. Humankind, mankind alone, is created in the image of God. It's unique and uniquely valuable because of this truth. No other creature is said to bear the image of God, the Imago Dei. Only humans made in His likeness. And that's what separates us beloved, from every other creature that's ever been created. This is the line that God drew in the beginning to distinguish His creatures of the earth and the seas from humanity and to establish the order that He intended. Some theories of mankind propose that humans are simply the most evolved the most advanced animal, and then some people actually make the case that maybe we're not. And if you watch the news, you understand. (laughs) The theory says that we're on the top of the chain, so to speak. Just an animal. But the Bible doesn't go with that. It separates men and women altogether from this category of mere animal And it actually places us over the animals and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Let them have dominion. Let them rule. Scripturally speaking, then, it is very clear Humans are made superior to and distinct from the animals. We are to rule over them. That is the position that God has given to us in creation, to have dominion. That word translated dominion comes from a root word that means to subjugate, to tread down, to rule. So when someone today wants to make the case, perhaps you've heard it, no doubt you've read it, that we're all animals and that humans are not to be valued above any other animal, which they never would say in the state of Maine in the month of May when the black flies come out, they may surely be speaking sincerely. I don't doubt it. But as an old college professor of mine pointed out wisely, people can be sincere and sincerely wrong. 
They may be speaking sincerely. They may be speaking passionately out of what they value and what they believe. No problem with that. But their conclusion is just not biblical is all. And that's what matters to us. The worldview doesn't come from Scripture. Their uh, idea that everything is the same, equally valuable theory is literally out of order from the perfect way that God established in Genesis when He set up creation. Okay, if I'm being too theoretical, let me put it to you this way. It might sound cute when someone says cats are people too. But cats are not people. I don't care if that offends you. I really don't. I don't care if you love your kitty. I don't care if you love your puppy. You should. These are good company. A lot of fun. But don't get confused. Not morally equivalent to your neighbor or your spouse or your child or your friend or even your enemy. Mankind is above the animals. Humans are more valuable to God than animals. God made mankind in His image, and this He did in a distinct way. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So last point for today. Point number four, God created us male and female. When it comes to gender, God's design is composed of two things. Humans are male and female. Humans are male or female. Scripturally speaking, and that's a very important distinction, scripturally speaking, there is no third option. There is no fourth option. There is no other option. Now, friend, would you ever have believed that we would come to a point in our society where a preacher would have to point out that according to God's Word and creative design, His own blueprint for humanity, people will be male or female. Twenty years ago, that would have been a given. If I would spend any time on that, twenty years ago, people would say, what is your problem? It's obvious that we are male and female. We all know that. Move on to something more controversial, Pastor. Well, this is controversial. Today, some people count what I just said to be heretical. Heretical in regards to their belief system, in in regards to their world view. Not necessarily because their belief is rooted in science either. That's a whole other argument. We are not going into that now. But why is it heretical to say today that one is either male or female? Generally, because it defies how some people feel. Because it says to know to how some people perceive. How some people want to identify. 
So in Genesis chapter 1, we'll note this. We have a perfect design. And what does God say about his perfect design? That wasn't very enthusiastic. What does God say about his perfect design? It's good. It's not just good. It's very good. It's wholly good. It's vehemently good. It's good. That's Genesis 1. We also know that in just a couple chapters in Genesis 3, yeah, there's a terrible account. And it's the fall of humanity. Right? When Adam and Eve disobeyed and sin entered the human race and it corrupted the entire natural world, changing everything eventually. And since that time, the perfect creation of God has been stressed, it's been distorted, it's been disfigured, it's been dying, decaying, it's been suffering. You see, in creation, God established normal. Sin is what made everything abnormal. And today, you and I live always with abnormal. And that means that spiritually and emotionally and even physically, every single one of us is broken. Every single one of us is marred. Every single one of us is incomplete and imperfect. And this is where compassion is in order for some who are truly, physiologically, gender confused. As well as those who are this way as a result of other factors in their lives. Some people are understandably, because of the sinful nature that we all have, confused and unsettled when it comes to gender. Right? To admit to gender dysphoria is no leap. It's real. But to consider that any of us determines our gender by how we feel is a wrong accommodation. It flies the flag of self-fulfillment as the highest ethic. You be you. The pursuit of the self becomes the highest ethic, not the thing to be denied. The false message is that if you can just be you, you'll be happy. We're told to live into ourselves. We're even told to put out of our lives those people who would oppose that or say anything negatively about that, get rid of them. We can call them toxic and it would make it okay. The Bible teaches us to deny ourselves, though, doesn't it? Why, why does the Bible teach us to deny ourselves? Why is the Bible basically saying, hey, Scott, you know, your first impulse probably not going to be great? Because we have a sinful bent. Because, as Justin prayed, we are rebels. We want to be our own gods. So we're supposed to deny ourselves, the Bible says. The Bible says that we aren't to conform to the pattern of this world. Why not? Well, Because the pattern of this world is just put together by a bunch of people who are just like us. Sinful, and their best guess isn't always that good. And it's going to lead to chaos and disorder and heartache. 
The Bible tells us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. What does that even mean? It means submitting ourselves to the purpose and plan of our Creator. It means yielding ourselves and being humble enough to say, you know what, God, maybe I don't know all there is to know. Maybe I don't have this exactly right. Maybe you have some wisdom for me that I need. Just open yourself up to that is what the Bible says. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your minds. That's the way you can present yourselves to God, living in holy sacrifices. So on the one hand, this issue of gender is straightforward from the biblical perspective, male and female made he them. And on another, from a cultural point of view, it's very complicated. And it's a complicated issue to to traverse, but it's one that we as Christians, if we're going to think in Christian categories, if we're going to develop a biblical worldview, it's one that we really cannot keep at arm's length anymore. If you think you're going to win your unsaved neighbor by saying, hey man, smarten up. He made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. You will fail. You might feel kind of good because that's kind of catchy. But you won't win anybody's heart. Christian, what good is it to win an argument if you don't win a heart? God, God calls us to make disciples. Making disciples is the hard work of engaging with those who aren't yet disciples. It's messy and it's miserable. But you've got to go there and say, listen, tell me how you think. Tell me what you think. And let me give you a different idea. This is, this is what I think. But guess what? I don't think this because I'm so smart. I think this because it comes from the Bible, which I believe is the authoritative Word of God. These are not my ideas. These are God's ideas, and I'm doing my best to, to, to show them to you. This is really how the church has to engage the world from now on. We are not in a majority position. We do not have the liberty to just say, hey, we're going to get what we want anyway because we have the votes. We've got to get in there and say, I know what you believe and I understand it and I don't have any problem with you trying to make sense of this world. I've done the same thing. Here's what I've come up with. Here's the book. Here's the main character. Here's the one plot. Here's what we're here for. We're going to dig a little deeper into this next week, Lord willing, as we answer together one of the questions Job poses from our reading through the Old Testament. Where does wisdom come from? Where can wisdom be found. Pray with me. Our Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, God, that we do not operate as your children with an outdated manual, but one that is living and active, sharp and discerning. Thank you, Father, for your word. And thank you for the grace that you have shown to us by giving it to us. And thank you, Lord, that you by your Holy Spirit reveal your truth to us.
Equip us as your people, Lord, with the right view, we pray, and with the right heart to reach the lost and the confused. Make us a vibrant church that isn't afraid to talk about the difficult things, that is equipped with everything that we need from your scripture to lay out the case that you have made. That's not our case, it's your case. For where things came from and how things ought to be. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.